Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today we're talking with Alan Baumgarten, ACE, who recently edited the Aaron Sorkin film The Trial of the Chicago 7. Alan was nominated for his first Ace Eddie in 1997. He won an Ace Eddie and an Emmy for Recount. He won an Ace Eddie and was nominated for an Oscar for American Hustle and was nominated for two more Ace Eddies for his editing of Joy and Molly's Game. I interviewed him previously for his work on Molly's Game. The rest of his filmography includes Venom, The Cloverfield Paradox, Gangster Squad, and Zombieland, among dozens of others. Aaron was also an additional editor on Jojo Rabbit. Tell me a little bit about The Trial of Chicago 7 and how you got that gig. Sure. Well, I had worked previously with Aaron on Molly's Game, and it was a great experience collaborating with him on that film. So I was hoping we could do another project together. And then it took a little while, but 2018, word came that Aaron was going to be directing The Trial of Chicago 7. And due to timing and good fortune, it came my way, the opportunity to work on that film. But it fell apart in pre-production due to financing issues. So it got delayed a full year. But once I'd read the script and was hooked, I was going to stay available and make sure I could find a way to do it if and when it would come back to life, which we were all hoping would be the case. And then a year ago, it started production in October. That's one of those tricky things for editors, especially that are in demand or that work with specific directors multiple times is how do you work your schedule so that you know when Aaron Sorkin calls, you're available? Well, it is tricky. Like you said, you just have to hope for the best and hope that it works out. And it doesn't always. You can't control it. I mean, there are certain things you can do, but as we know, things are shifting all the time. So it's a little risky to hold out for something that may or may not happen when you have perhaps a definite opportunity right in front of you. Once I knew that project was going to happen, I took a short-term job, made available, made sure if Aaron's movie came up, I would be able to move on to that. So you just have to trust your instincts. And obviously, when there's an opportunity to work with Aaron, and certainly on a film like The Trial of Chicago 7, which I found to be a fascinating and important subject, the kind of film I'd love to work on, I just did everything I could to hope that it would work out. Yeah. One of the biggest challenges, it seemed to me, from watching the film would be structurally. The film jumps around in time a lot. Right. Is that something that's tricky, or do you just think, hey, it's a scene, and I cut the scenes together, and then eventually we need to worry about context later? It's a really good question, and Aaron's scripts are very specific. The dialogue is beautifully written, but also a lot of the structural framework is established and built into the script. He very carefully writes a lot of the cross-cutting beats and moments into the script. So we have an opportunity there to work with an existing structure that leads the way, and then there's discovery and exploration and experimenting on how to execute it, the best way to get the timing, when to go from a dialogue scene and cross-cut to a flashback and then return to the dialogue. It's mapped out to a large extent, and that is certainly an advantage for any editor going into a project to have a director who has thought ahead to the structure of the story. But with Aaron, that's all part of the script. It's a story he sees playing out in his mind. He also is envisioning the entire film. Even if he's thinking editorially, he is thinking structurally, story-wise, when to be where. And he's moving back and forth and giving it those layers and textures of time jumps. And we use that as a springboard then to manipulate and play with it. 
Aaron's so well known as a writer. Is that something that carries through into the editing room in a good way or a tricky way? <laughs> it translates beautifully. Aaron appreciates editing very much and I think feels a kinship to the process because there are similarities to writing in that we're alone working on the material in editorial as much as a writer would be sitting to create something from scratch. But Aaron values and trusts the process in that he doesn't want to sit over my shoulder. He likes to give notes and then leave me to work on those notes. And then he'll come back and review with me and we'll talk through and finesse it further or come up with new ideas or decide we're good and we'll move on. So he likes to treat editing with a lot of freedom and a lot of respect to take time with the material. So in that sense, I think his experience as a writer translates very well to his ability to work well in editorial. So there's a lot of freedom to work with him, but it's a great back and forth. It made me just think of something for the first time, which is, you know, lots of people say that film editing and writing are similar and that editing is the final rewrite and all kinds of things like that. But the other thought that as you were talking about the process and his patience made me think of revisions of a script and how many versions of a script you have to write before you come up with the final one and how editing is a very similar process in that you have this first assembly that you have very early in the process, maybe a week or two after the show is shot, and then the film discovers itself for many, many months after that. You're absolutely right. That's a very good point, and I think it's well said, just as you put it, that it's about the revisions, the refinement, the tweaking, the reassessing the material, dialing it into where you feel it's just right. That goes on constantly in writing and in rewriting until you get to a place where you're happy. And the same is true, obviously, with editing. We do that as routine. I mean, you start with a first cut, and sometimes it's very, very close, and other times you tear it apart and approach it much differently. And it's an ongoing process to work through the material in a revision process to get to the final result. I find that process somewhat difficult with my ego, to be honest. And I would love some, uh, maybe some mentorship here on the phone, which is that idea that many people say that the editor's got like how bad it is or something. And yet you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> that's my work. But you have to know that there's this process that you have to go through. And just because your first cut wasn't what the director wanted or that the first assembly is a nightmare, that is not really a reflection on you. Ah, let me think about how to respond. I think it's... it's or is it? Or is it a reflection on you? I don't, or how do you keep it from being a reflection? Well, it is and it isn't. I think it's a reflection on you given the amount of time you had. So literally every time a judgment is made, and it is hard, it does sting when people are jumping on the work when you feel like you haven't had enough time or some new ideas are just bubbling to the surface and there hasn't been the opportunity to implement that or to try that. And that would be maybe perhaps the next step naturally or inevitably. But judgments are made, I guess, at whatever point you're at. So that has to be kept in mind. And it's not a reflection necessarily on the skill, the talent, or the work that's ultimately going to be done. It's really just a matter of function of limited time, generally. Judgments are made perhaps too soon. I think it needs to be understood that it's a gradual process and it takes time. And People are more and more impatient when I say people, whether it's producers or executives or, you know, it could be directors, of course, as well. There's a desire to get to the end result quickly, and it just doesn't usually happen that way. And I think people have to understand that. And that is hard for editors to sometimes endure the impatience that people might have and 
the lack of understanding that the best results come from working the material. A time to reassess, a time to reflect, to step away. It's very important. I think it's a necessary part of the process to collaborate with the assistants, the other people on the team, the sound editors, the music editors. Everybody involved has contributions and ideas, and you're working as a collective group. So even though in editorial you're right there making the final adjustments to the picture, there is a collective team often, and that can be very helpful in terms of advancing the, the fine details of the project forward. With Aaron, he's, a, am assuming, an incredibly busy man. And so other than notes, how much were you guys in the room together and how much is he there and how does he like to work? During the director's cut process, Aaron's very disciplined and he likes to come in every day. He doesn't spend a long time there. He'll come and visit and give notes, review with myself and my first assistant, Christine Kim, who was promoted to additional editor at the end of the project. And she was very influential and part of uh, being right there with us the whole way. So she would take notes and Aaron and Christine and I would discuss the themes and work through a set of notes to dive into, and Aaron would go away and let us present him a new version with the notes addressed and any other new ideas we had. And Aaron would come back, we'd talk about it, and keep moving on in that sense. Aaron also likes to work very chronologically through the film. So we'll start at the beginning and work on a section, whether it's five or ten minutes or maybe a little longer, and we'll stay on that section for a day, two days, three days, whatever it takes, and then move on to the next section. And we won't move on until Aaron feels that we're at a good place in terms of being very close to what he'd like. We obviously go back and do that same process repeatedly, but each time the notes are hopefully fewer and we're making maybe a couple performance adjustments or new ideas that might come into play. But we work through it methodically. And then as we get further into the process, Aaron is involved in the sound spotting, the music spotting, and he'll be involved quite directly with the composer as well. We were In this case, of course, the workflow was altered quite significantly with the pandemic and the COVID situation, and we were working from home. So we did a lot of Zoom phone calls, and we were working long distance, which is very different for all of us. We were able to get through the director's cut in person, which was fantastic. That was just how it worked for us timing-wise. In March, we were finished with the 10-week director's cut right when we had to shut down the editing room and then put the avids at our houses. And we continued to work through the post-process that way, including the sound mix. We went to Warner Brothers and the color timing, we went to eFilm. But, and Aaron was involved in that, but he let me get it close, and then he would come for reviews and give notes, and we would post things for him. As I continued to do the fine cutting, I would post sequences for Aaron, and then we would chat on the phone or via email or via Zoom phone calls, discuss the work or the changes or the revisions, and just keep working forward that way. How were you sharing things with him? Was there a technology that you were using? We kept it fairly simple on this film. We just used the PIX system, which I'm sure you're familiar with, for mm-hmm. posting. Yep. And Christine would post sequences or reels on PIX for Aaron. He would watch those and then give us a note that way. Then we'd communicate. So we continued to do that the whole way. We didn't tie him into our avid or screen share in that sense and work live, except one or two times with the music or for a visual effects review, we would do that. I'm really interested in the fact that Christine was promoted to additional editor. What do you attribute that to? And to some extent, is that a sign of also your confidence in the place you are in your career? I've talked to other editors that said, you know, I feel like I'm far enough along that I can give so many additional editor and not feel like that takes away from me at all. (laughs) That is certainly true. Uh, Christine is very deserving and has edited two independent films on her own already, and they're both getting some attention. I'd worked with her previously uh, several times, a handful of times, so we had a shorthand, we were a great team, 
And I felt very fortunate that she would be willing to assist again because she's really ready to move on full-time on editing. But this was a project that appealed to her, the opportunity to do some editing, which did happen over the course of the film. She helped me put some sequences together right from the very beginning. She was involved in pulling a lot of the stock footage and helping organize that and bring that forward into the film. At that point, we realized it was time to give her the recognition and the credit, which she so rightly deserved. Yeah, that's awesome. And you said that you've worked with her before. When do you know that someone is ready to step up and step out and someone's work is deserving of being recognized? Huh, it's a good question. Because she's going through the same process, right? You see an original edit from her and just like yours is being criticized by Aaron, oh, you know, this isn't quite where I want it. Right. Her edits that she gives to you would also probably be a little disappointing at the beginning, but then you get there. They're very telling. I think the key for me is that someone who presents something that they've done can explain and justify and know exactly why they did something and most likely have alternates as well and say, well, I also tried this rather than doing it just one way and saying, here's what I've come up with. Sometimes that's fine. But what I'm looking for is somebody who's really worked the material. You have the script and you have an intention from the director or the writer, of course, originally, and then the director of what a scene should be, but then you also have the footage and you have all of the performances, you have various images that may be surprising and helpful in putting a new approach to tell the scene. So you want to know that an editor has looked at things from every different angle, from all different ways of approaching a scene and maybe has tried different ways to do it as well and can show you an alternate or can explain exactly why something was done. So it has to come from a place where I feel that there was a thoroughness, I guess is the best way to say it, and a complete understanding of all the material and a complete conviction as to why things are done a certain way as opposed to a different way, so that there can then be discussion as to what is perhaps going to be a way to improve what's there. So it's not just taking criticism or opinion, but rather being part of that discussion, like understanding that there are still more things to be done or other things that could be tried. It's so interesting that your answer is so involved with the ability to communicate intent and purpose and reasoning and all that kind of stuff. I just talked to a film editing class last night on Zoom and was asked about that. And I said, yeah, communication skills are incredibly important for an editor. And it's not just about what you do in the timeline. It's got to be about how you're able to talk to your other collaborators. Explaining your thought process, I agree. Because a lot of it is instinctual, and a lot of it is by feeling. Sometimes it is hard to explain. You just say, it just seemed right, or it felt right. And that's okay, because that's how we all operate as well. On a first level, you just want to have the material speak to you, or feel that this is emotionally the place you want to be, and why you want to do it a certain way. But it's helpful to be able to communicate and explain the reasoning or the thinking behind that. Right. When you're working with a director and they say, to me, I think it's a joke almost of, is this the best take? (laughs) You have to be able to say, oh, I chose this take because of this purpose. I thought it served this story purpose and it was better than this other take because of this thing. That's great that you said that, Steve. You're obviously an experienced editor and so knowledgeable. You're talking to all the editors you speak with. That is so great. This came up the other day in discussion with some friends of mine. It's often the case we laugh about that when somebody says, is that the best take? And I know at least two editors who jokingly, sometimes they actually say it. They obviously feel like saying, no, I chose the worst take. (laughs) To me, that's not what they're asking you or implying. And it gets back to what you mentioned earlier about sensitivity of how do we handle that kind of thing. It feels like a critique. But so when people ask, is it the best take? I usually say, I think, yeah, I think it is because of this. Just like you say, you explain why you chose it. 
And often it's a revelation to the people, to the director or to whoever you're explaining it to, because they didn't realize that, oh, there are five important things going on, and you're having to assess that this one ticks off most of them and for that reason is the best choice. It can be very subjective as to what is the most important thing. Sometimes people lean too much on what technically is the best, and that usually isn't going to fly as the best reason to choose something. It depends on who the director is or what the project is. Sometimes technical perfection or excellence in a moment is the right thing. Another time, more likely, it's an emotional or an intangible reason that this overall feeling or identification of the moment that comes through in this other piece is why it makes it better. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sometimes, right, you have to say it isn't the best take, but if we use the best take in this point, we can't get to the really important best take in this other setup or later in the scene. You can't bridge that gap. Again, very well said. If it unravels too many things, you have to assess, is it that important to use another take that's slightly better? Or is the greater reason, as you said, the overall construction of a more important beat you're trying to get to, and this lets you get to it in a perfect way? So it does become really a matter of priorities. And so that's important in terms of seeing the forest and the trees. You have to understand what you're looking for or going for. What are some of the important things for you to discuss or to hear from Aaron about either tone or intent? What are some of the ways he communicates with you? I'm sure he doesn't just go, oh, I want six frames cut out of that. He's giving you directions that are much different than specifics maybe. Yeah, a lot of the tone is built into the script and how he directs the performances. He gets very specific in terms of the overlaps, where he wants an overlap and how much he wants overlapped. He'll also focus very much on inflection. If a line reading goes up or down in the wrong place and he wants it to be adjusted, that will be something we will look very carefully to finesse. So it tends to be those smaller bits on the performance rather than a big tone issue because usually that's sorted out in the performance and he's written in an attitude or a tone he's going for. And we get that pretty close. It's, as I said, the overlaps, the inflection, and sometimes it just also comes down to pace. He's looking for a tone that comes through in terms of an energy and a more musical rhythm dialogue. Yeah, I think he's very well known for that rhythm and pacing in his dialogue. Is that something that really drives your visual pacing of a scene is the performance pacing? I would say it is first and foremost uh, element that drives everything is the rhythm and pacing of the dialogue with a careful attention to when to back off and when to take pauses and when to let the reactions breathe and making sure the certain key moments land and you let an actor finish a line and you let somebody else take it in. But in many cases, they are speaking on top of each other, as people do in real life, and letting that more chaotic, natural, organic flow of dialogue happen where everybody's speaking at once, or one person starts and somebody else finishes their sentence, including repeats, which he builds in as well very cleverly, so that if a line is obscured or overlapped, it is either restated or the question is asked in the following moment where you then understand the context of something that you might have missed. Interesting. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Alan Baumgarten. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. This week, FilmTools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on FilmTools.com. 
So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to filmtools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my interview with Alan Baumgarten. Talk to me a little bit about intercutting stock footage with the production footage. Well, the opening sequence, the prologue of the film, has stock footage that was written into the script with the footage of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy and the escalation of the Vietnam War and some of the newscaster footage. All of that was written in very carefully into this prologue that Aaron wrote in a way that conveyed the time and the place for this film. So we're establishing that, and we're also introducing our characters, which we shot in production, of course, with our actors, in terms of the more narrative, dialogue-based moments where we find out who each person is. So we had the stock footage going in to that area. We expanded it a little bit from what was in the script, but that was the only area that Aaron actually wrote stock footage in to this film. As part of my research, I was pulling from some of the archival material just to have it on hand, because based on Molly's game, I knew we might delve into stock footage eventually. And also for our own satisfaction and research, it was just good to have some of the real material at hand to study it and get a feel for what was really happening in the events. Not that we were going to mimic or copy them because we had real footage where they staged riots and Big Faden, Papa Michael, and the entire crew did a great job of getting some very real handheld in the moment material. But on the side, we did have bins of stock footage that we were breaking down into different categories and groups just to have it on hand. And as we were proceeding through the cut and the edit working with Aaron, I think it was maybe on our second pass in the riot, he said, let's consider trying some stock footage here and making it black and white. And I thought that was great because we were really ready to do it and thinking we might want to do that ourselves. And we did some experimenting with how much and we gradually settled on a fairly quick little burst Style where we would go to black and white quickly to just give a little extra energy or an authenticity or a brushstroke, really, of the real moment interspersed with our footage in a way that was meant to be seamless, but because it was black and white, you knew we were going to a different level of footage. It wasn't our original material. We were very committed to Aaron's idea to make it all black and white. Some of it was black and white in its source, but other footage was color, and we went ahead and made it black and white. And we actually used stock footage in the total of five areas in the film. Got the opening sequence, of course, which has it. The first riot and the second riot both have stock footage. And the moment after the first riot, when things settle down, we actually leave the first riot with three black and white stock shots of the crowd dispersing and leaving the park. And then the police by the statue in Grand Park sort of chasing some of the last demonstrators away and another shot of de-escalating. And then we settle into the following scene, which is the aftermath, where the park is showing protesters who have been wounded and are recovering, and some are being arrested and taken away, and the area is quite littered with the aftermath. We started that sequence with five shots from Medium Cool, the Ask Alexa documentary, which we left in color. Those are the only stock shots we left in color, and those blended seamlessly. They're a little bit more grainy than our footage, but we also added grain to our footage. And I think we needed more time at the end of that first riot to just settle down before we got into the scene where our characters are talking about that they have to decide what to do next. They feel somewhat defeated, and they don't know if they're going to get to the convention. And Abby's saying they have to protest at the convention, and Tom is, is feeling like they're in real danger. Things are getting you know out of hand. 
So that sequence had the extra stock shots leading into our original footage, which matched perfectly of the protesters who were still feeling the effects of the tear gas and comforting each other and milling about. And then also the murder of Fred Hampton, we used some stills to illustrate very quickly, quick flashes of the bullet holes in the wall, the shot up mattress, and Fred Hampton dead, and the police who were there at the scene standing around. They were very, very quick, but they conveyed in flashes while the phone is ringing and Tom and Bernadine are getting the news that something's happened. We flash back in a sense, but we're flashing forward to the audience before we're going to hear what happened. Did you ever see the movie Bobby, Emilio Estevez's film about Bobby Kennedy's assassination? I interviewed Richard Chu about that movie, and obviously it was a real event, Bobby Kennedy's assassination, and leading up to it and around it and the ambulance showing up and all that kind of stuff, they had footage of it and they intercut footage, even though they had shot their own footage of the ambulance and all that stuff, mm-hmm. they intercut stock footage into the actual production footage. I'm going to check that out. I'm glad you mentioned that and have a look at that now because I did the same thing recently with The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Uh, a journalist that I spoke with said that he was reminded of that film, which also integrated stock footage with actual production material. And they do that for the riots and the protests or actually the invasion of the Prague Spring with the Soviet tanks arriving in uh, Czechoslovakia, Prague. And it's very effective. There's a fairly extended sequence of actual documentary footage mixed in with the reenacted footage with the actors, which is also in black and white, but very successful and probably much the way you're speaking that they used in Bobby. Argo did it as well, and that's something we talked about. Aaron and I spoke about Argo before we started the film, just you know, appreciating how well they integrated footage there at the embassy and uh, the protests and the violence that was happening, mixing original production footage with stock footage of the historical archival and Oliver Stone, of course, in JFK, and even in Nixon, there's, there are elements of those things happening, too. My old boss, when I moved to Chicago, I worked at a post-production facility that did TV commercials and the Oprah Winfrey show and stuff like that, and some documentary work for Bill Curtis. And the guy that owned that post-production house, Del Hall, was one of the news cameramen that shot all that Chicago 7 footage. For the news or for the Haskell Wexler film? For ABC. And I mean, there's even a famous photo of him. He got beat by the police as a photojournalist. And he actually, it was funny, he went on, believe it or not, Dell went on Antiques Roadshow because he went to the trial of the Chicago 7 <laughs> And he just went up to those guys and he got them to sign whatever the court document was that they gave to all the press. He's got that signed with all seven guys' signatures on it. (laughs) That's fantastic. Wow. That's powerful. Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting. I love that. Uh, Anyhow, let's talk about storytelling. Editors use that term a lot. We all say that we're storytellers. In the nuts and bolts of watching dailies and putting together the first cut of a scene, how are you telling the story in a way that amplifies the story beyond what's in the script? Well, I start with the script and then, of course, when I'm in possession of the material that's been shot, I have all of the actors' performances and interpretations of the script, the way they've portrayed the moments. And then I have other images and shots and footage that the DP has provided from set. So it's a combination of watching all of the dailies and looking for the best performances, finding the moments that speak to me that feel the most real or the most anchored in places within a scene that would be the driving points to get to. And I work in that way to try to find the truth in each scene and see what the intent is. And then I use the performances to go back and with the script, of course, in mind, keeping the pace and the flow that Aaron has written and make sure that we achieve that. But it's usually... A lot of it has to do with reaction shots, as you know, 
playing a scene so that there is an impact and you want to have the other characters involved, whether they're just listening or whether they're commenting and responding, these scenes are not monologues. They're meant to be a lively engagement of an actual moment or scene that's happening in a room or in an office or outside. And you want to create the reality in the most dynamic and impactful way possible. I love that answer. Continuing this idea about storytelling, how do you continue to function as a storyteller as you get out of that process and now you're working with the director's cut or you're working with a film in context and having to either cut scenes or rearrange scenes or go through the longer process of the film? What are you doing to be a storyteller? Are there any examples you could give from this movie, for example? And an example perhaps would be a scene with Ramsey Clark when he's in court, Michael Keaton, and he's on the witness stand offering what he would like to be his testimony, but it's not allowed. So the testimony ultimately, William Punsclaver is asking him the questions, he's providing answers about what happened. The judge says that cannot be heard. The moment we found was so profound that it really had to be a big moment of defeat and almost the crushing blow for our defendants because that's essentially when they know it's all over. When they can't have that testimony heard, they're last hope is being dashed. And to let that weigh as heavily as we wanted to land, we wanted to add some close-ups and feel more impact in reaction. And we didn't really have as many close-ups as we wanted, so we went to other scenes to look and steal some shots. And we had to change the color of wardrobe, blow up a shot, flop a shot, do things and tricks that we often do. But in this case, it was for a very specific purpose where in the storytelling process, we wanted to make more of a reaction at that moment. So we built that in editorially with material that wasn't necessarily originally intended, but the looks achieved what we wanted to achieve. And that was manipulating it to our purpose. Before we started this interview, you and I were talking about the fact that you were watching a webinar about some of the actual people and what the truth was of the movie compared to what they actually experienced Is there some kind of a feeling for you or a responsibility with working with something like Molly's Game or this, where you're working with real life people, people that are still alive? That's a good question. I feel like in a dramatic film, there are always going to be certain facts or situations that have been changed or altered for the storytelling purposes of the screenwriter and the filmmaker. And generally speaking, I think that's perfectly acceptable and normal to know that these are not factual movies or documentaries per se. They're movies that are going to be with a couple hours perhaps of screen time. So you may not be able to tell the whole story of whatever the event or uh, person's life might be. So there will be consolidations or combinations of different elements that would be considered dramatic license. And as long as you're true to the spirit of the story and the subject, I think that's okay. And in this case, Aaron has always said his work is more of a painting of a photograph. It's not a true representation. It's not a documentary. It's not a one-for-one telling. So I like to get dates right or locations right. And maybe for clarity, I will refer to the original source material or just look it up online, what really happened or what's the truth here. And if I can adhere to it without straying from the momentum of the film or the purpose of what we're trying to achieve in our story, keep the facts accurate where I can. Did you do any prep about seeing either documentaries or reading books about the actual events? I did do a fair amount of research. I watched some of the previous films that have been done. There are other films, Chicago 10, the Brett Morgan film is is very good. There are some books. I mentioned also Medium Cool, the Haskell Wexler film. There are 
some books about the trial, one that has some illustrations from Jules Pfeiffer. It's a great book, Conspiracy in the Streets. I read a book on more about 1968 in America, the period, to get a feel for that. And I also bought the transcript of the trial, the giant book of the conspiracy trial, actual court records, just to have it on file. I like to have some of that material at my fingertips in the editing room just to look up certain things like, you know, what date was this contempt citation or how many citations of contempt were issued. Because it does come up. Sometimes there's a question that you might have. It's a fun part of the process for me, though, whatever the project is. This one was great. But others, I may just be listening to music or looking at some art or reading some other material that might help me. It's, it's always fun to approach a film, gathering some information and kind of revving up to it. Another question about just the very nuts and bolts of approaching a scene when you get a fresh bin of dailies and you've got an empty timeline. Are you a selects guy? Do you just go to the clips? Do you watch dailies passively first time or are you always actively watching and taking notes or doing something? What do you do when you get a fresh set of dailies in? My process changes a bit depending on the scene or the project. Ideally, I like to watch the footage, just watch the dailies and not even take notes. I usually have trouble holding myself back. I will make some notes, but sometimes I'll just watch all the footage and take it in and just experience all the material. Something that's really good or great will jump out at me and stick, and I'll know it when I go back and look for it again. But it depends on how much footage there is. So my next step would be either to take some notes or to usually start in and make selects. I will generally make selects of important moments in the scene, my favorite pieces, sometimes line readings, like two or three. I don't go crazy and you know, pull a lot of them, but I'll pull a couple favorites. I don't try to fine cut it right out of the gate by any means. I will cut it to get a good sense of it and have some of the best pieces in it. And then I'll go back and whittle it down or start to add more layers. I think I try to describe it possibly as a layered approach where I work through the scene and then I work through it again. And I really want to get it to a place that I'm happy with before I move on. I find it hard during production and during dailies because the footage is still coming in constantly. And I may need more time than I would possibly have to finish a scene. So I'll park it and move on and then come back to it. And I find that sometimes very helpful, though, to leave it and come back another day or days later, actually, to come back to it. And sometimes I'll work more on the beginning of the scene or the end of the scene and try to figure out the transition. Also trying early on when I'm first approaching scenes to remember and maintain the sense that there's going to be a flow. Where is the story going? If I know the linkage of what's going to happen from one scene to the next, I think that's extremely important. To me, the exciting moments, and sometimes I like to do them early on, are the transitions in and out of sequences, so I'll know where the movie's going. Alan, thank you so much for a great interview. I really appreciate all your time today. It's always exciting talking to you. You certainly have good questions and a thorough knowledge and appreciation, which is great as an editor yourself. So good talking to you, Steve. Thank you. Talk to you soon. That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Alan Baumgarten, ACE, and also to Jake Gum for editing this episode. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.